This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Today, we're venturing back into drama, and when I say back, I mean way, way back, all the way to 496 BC, give or take a few years, all the way back to Athens, Greece, where we will meet one of the most famous playwrights of all time, Sophocles. And by the way, get ready for the pronunciation of a lot of Greek names. It's tricky stuff. (laughs) But before we do... Um, I've been called out for an inconsistency. It seems that we have listeners that have made the claim that I have just completely quit the fun facts, that I've dropped the ball. So, in response, I thought I've kind of revived the tradition of the Christie fun fact. Um, Christie has a strange connection with Greece in that her passion for Greece does not come necessarily for a love of the language, although she took Greek in high school. Uh, or, by the way, the, the food, the wine, or even the beaches, things she loves. But her connection is from the movie Mamma Mia. <laughs> she and her daughters, Anna and Lizzie, have a passionate relationship for all things Mamma Mia, including the fact that this summer she and her daughter, Anna, performed a fine, albeit out-of-tune, performance of Mamma Mia in Valparaiso, Chile, in front of a large group of karaoke watchers, and I have the video to prove it. It should be posted. <laughs> oh, dear, and it will kill you. But then maybe she should take one for the team. <laughs> <laughs> it is awkward when you do this, but I can't deny that Mamma Mia did introduce me to Greece. But Greece can certainly hold its own uh, without ABBA. This summer was the first time I'd ever been there. We didn't even get to go to the islands, just the mainland, so I'm definitely going back. But, you know, I'm not the only one with fun facts, if we can call them that. Lots of people have fun facts about Greece or any of the other books we're talking about. So if you do have about 
a fun fact about something we're talking about or some place that we've been or some place that we're talking about, feel free to message us on Facebook, Instagram, or via the website. And we'd love to give you a shout out. Just tell us what book it connects to in your fun fact. Well, now, leaving Abba and going to Sophocles, Sophocles is one of the big three Greek poets you may have heard of before. Sophocles, Euripides, and Aeschylus. Sophocles is said to have written as many as 123 dramas prior to his death around 406 BC. Remember, we're counting up or backwards from this point. Only seven have survived the 2,500 years of human history between now, and only two of those can be dated with any amount of certainty. So, Christy, before we get into Sophocles and Oedipus, what do we need to know about Greek theater in general to be able to really understand it? Ugh, well, that's actually a very multifaceted question with a long answer, but I want us to take it in chunks. To begin with, something to keep in mind is that the purpose of Greek theater was really different than what we think of theater today. For the citizens of Athens in the 5th century BC, theater was a religious as well as a civic or like a community occasion. There were really two times a year that they even had them, and both of these were at religious festivals, and both were associated with a god, the god Dionysus, who happens to be the god of wine and crops. When I try to explain it, how this would work kind of to my kids in Memphis, I try to make the comparison with Christian churches, because in Memphis, Christianity has a very strong cultural or civic tradition, as well as a religious one, too. So in Memphis, we have many churches, and some of these churches we call mega churches. That means they're really, really big. And there's one that stands out in the middle of town. Its name is Bellevue, Bellevue, Bellevue and it has upward of 10,000 members. And one of the things that they do every year, and it has been something that's been in our community for quite some time, is they put on these pageants, one at Christmas and one at Easter. And they will hold these things for a couple of weeks And people from all around will come to congregate and to see these kind of works of art. And they're full of people singing. They have fireworks, orchestras. It's a huge deal. We talked a little bit about this in the Christmas edition. So in some sense, I think you need to think of these theater events in that sense, where communities come together in something of a religious kind of a way, except you do have to remember that the religions are not the same. <laughs> well, I would have to say that there is some significant difference, uh, Dionysius being the god of wine. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt that there was a different feel than a Christian service or mass. Um, there was a lot of drunkenness, and the atmosphere was far from what today we would consider reverent. Well, That's true. But there's another parallel with religious cantatas uh, as we know them today. Sophocles, or really uh, any of the major classical uh, Greek writers, saw the purpose of the plays as being somewhat instructional. Now, their type of moral instruction doesn't parallel a code of ethics. Like, this is wrong and this is right, in the same way that maybe you would think of Today, but it is ethical and moral in a philosophical sense. So these plays uh, are instructional. Sophocles is a teacher on stage and he's trying to instruct fellow men to think and act in a way 
that will put them in line with the rules of the universe so that perhaps they can have some shot at improving themselves, their fates. And in this sense, some of the ideas that he talks about are ideas that have turned out to be timeless and they've been explored. We don't have the answers to the questions that he's asking literally 2,000 years later. He looks deeply at the correct attitude and concept of family relationships. This is specifically true in Antigone. But he also really delves into this idea of our ability to control our own future and our ability to see and forecast future consequences. Sophocles really believed that man was capable of reaching any human goal that he set for himself. But in order to achieve great things, you had to use your brain and you had to steer your emotions in a constructive way. And there's so much about the structure of his writing that still shows up in plays today. So we're talking about ideas that have stood uh, the test of 2,500 years. So there was something of human spirit that was really directly uh, addressed by him. Yeah, and that's nice. Yeah. Well, that's part of what goes into the canon. As we have discussed (laughs) before, there's something about human nature that comes up time and time again. Um, so, but anyway, uh, I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves and talking about themes. So let's go back to the basics. Let's just say I'm a tourist and I show up in Greece during March at the Great Dionysia, the three-day citywide celebration. What would I see? Well, you would definitely know that you'd showed up at a special occasion. First of all, Athens would be jam full of people from every social class because it didn't matter. You could be rich. You could be poor. If you could afford the admission, you paid. If you couldn't afford it, you didn't. If you were a citizen, you had the right to be there, and they would find a way to let you in. It was a big, big deal. Each day at dawn, a different author would present a trilogy. Now, think about how long this was going on. A trilogy. (laughs) As in three. (laughs) Yes, of tragic plays. There would be three interrelated dramas. And after the dramas, they would have what they call a satyr play. Now, a satyr is actually a mythical creature that's half man and half goat. And these would be obscene, short parodies about a satyr doing something or other. Uh, After all this, a different writer, not the writer that had written the three tragedies in a satyr, would present a comedy And then you would do this for three days in a row. And this was an actual competition. At the end of the three days, they'd have this panel of five judges. They would announce which one was the best. A lot of times they'd make their decision based on the reaction of the crowd. So if your piece was really popular and was getting... These are very like active, noisy, rambunctious events. So you could probably tell which ones were the most popular. But if you won first prize, not only did you get a crown made of ivy, which of course that would be gone in a couple of days, but you'd get a substantial cash prize. Uh, I will say that there has been a bit of source of irony that Sophocles, who did win this tournament 24 times, did not win with Oedipus, the play Hmm, that is the most famous one. Yeah, Aeschylus had just died, and so they gave it to him that year with some popular thing. The Festival to Dionysus has actually had over 500 years of practicing history before the golden age of the big three, Sophocles, Euripides, and Aeschylus. If you think about that, that's a long tradition. Um, it was originally about the singing and dancing and celebrating the, the legend of Dionysus, but 
Aside from singing and dancing and celebrating the legends of Dionysus, there's a lot we don't know about these festivals. We do know that by the 5th century, the plays were an extremely important component of the festivals and were funded by the state and were competitions. We also know that many Greek towns had these amphitheaters. And if you go to the How to Love Lit Instagram page, back to the promo on Julius Caesar, you'll see Christy and her brother in Italy where they have these two horsing around in one of those theaters. Well, that's true. And the theaters themselves are just very cool. And I didn't know until I got out in the world a little bit that they're in other places besides Greece. They have them all over the Middle East. There's even one that I know of in Cairo, and there's one in Spain, and I'm sure there's lots of them all over the ancient world. Uh, They're mostly carved in hills with rising rows of seats, and they can hold, some of them, 14,000, 17,000 people would fit in there. Well, at the bottom, so the people would be in the top, in the hill part, and at the bottom would be what they would call the orchestra, or the dancing place, and that's where the chorus lined up. Then behind behind the chorus, they would have this backdrop. They called it a skein, which was, I guess you would think of it as the set. And that was where the actors, it was, it was a set, but it also was kind of enclosed. The actors could go in there uh, and change if they needed to. And it was in front of this where the actors actually performed. Of course, uh, for hundreds of years, like you said, it was just singing and dancing in circles, kind of like you see in a lot of ancient cultures. But then it changed when a guy named Thespis introduced the idea of the actor. The actor. (laughs) Henceforth, all actors are now called... Thespians. (laughs) You're right. Um, The playwright Aeschylus, though, thought of the idea of adding the second actor. Oh, my. But then Sophocles, none other than our own, he said, if not two, why not three? And thus, theater is born. (laughs) And there are going to be some plays where they put hundreds on stage. There's just no end to it now. None. Well, if you say it like that, it seems like that shouldn't have taken much thought. So why so long to invent that concept? But that is the basis of the present. Actually, I can see how adding a second and then a third player on the stage really changes the dynamics or nature of the presentation completely. You're right. It changed everything. So instead of the show being primarily about the chorus or the singing and dancing, now the show is about the relationship between characters, about dialogue, conflict, things that we would consider more like what we think of a play actually being. The role of the chorus changed. And so instead of you know, just singing praise and worship songs, it became a lot about seeing background information uh, like we see in Oedipus, or sometimes they act as townspeople or they give information about what we're supposed to think about the different characters. And then, of course, they still sing praises to the gods. That's always going to be in there. Well, um, as a musician, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is the logistics of how a performer could possibly connect with a crowd of 15,000 people without microphones and speakers. You're right. And that is the biggest challenge. And helping people hear, you know, that's a big deal. Well, first of all, they would hire people and it was a really big deal if you could project your voice and there weren't very many people. I don't even know what that would take that, that, but I guess there were people that could actually project their voice out to those kinds of crowds and when they found them, you know, they identified them and kept them around. They're well paid. And Sophocles actually wrote parts with specific people in mind that, 
that could do the parts that he wanted them to do. But also, if you go to a Greek play now, one of the things that you'll notice, and to me it, it looks kind of strange and unfamiliar, uh, are the masks. And that Greek mask is what you see on a lot of curtains. It's kind of become the symbol for theater. But these masks uh, would be so that the same person who could project his voice could play more than one role. The mask would be fairly generic, like an old man or a young man. I think Edifice had to have his own because, you know, the whole stabbing out of his eyes problem. But in general, uh, the masks tended to be large and they would fit over their entire heads. I saw that show, um, The Mask Singer. That's, I think they were a little bit between a mask and what those people wear is kind of what they look like. But inside them, they would have these fitted mouthpieces that are said to have helped people project their voices. I don't know what that means, like a megaphone type thing. I I can't, it's difficult to understand the technology, but uh, obviously it worked. They would also wear really elaborate costumes and Some scholars say they wear platform shoes. Other scholars say no way do they wear platform shoes. But anyway, I in my mind, think of it more like kabuki theater than Broadway theater. And I mean, really, okay. to be able to kind of visualize uh, the spectacle that it was definitely going to be. So uh, if I'm in the theater sitting there with 15,000 of my closest friends, a choir comes out sings a song, and then a few guys come out. I mean, are the plays divided like they are acts in Shakespeare? Uh, in some sense, yeah, they kind of are. They are divided, and in some editions, you will still see, you know, the the books will kind of mark up these uh, divisions, but not always. There is a pattern, though, no matter uh, what in edition you're reading. And by the way, you'll recognize several of the terms, or at least the cognates of the terms of this pattern. So this is how it's going to go. First, you're going to have the prologue. Does that word sound familiar? <laughs> Sounds like the beginning. Yes, and this is basically what we would call the exposition if you're going on Freytag Triangle. Then the chorus comes out, and we have what they call the parados. So this will give us the point of view. It's going to tell us what we should be thinking about what we're getting ready to see. Then you're going to have episodias, and I'm, I'm probably not pronouncing these properly, but The English word is episodes, and that should sound familiar. So you're going to have a series of episodes. The characters will come out, and they'll have debates, and we'll see the different conflicts. And between each episode, we'll have one episode. Then the chorus will come out again, and they'll do a number. Uh, they're called the, the Stasimond. But then think of them as kind of like musical interludes. And this is, to me, what makes it look like a Christmas cantata. So you'll have a little bit of talking, then you'll have a singing, and the singing will interpret praises to God, then we'll tell you what you're supposed to be thinking about the episode. And then they'll go back and we'll have another episode, then the chorus will respond to whatever happened in that episode. And then the last scene is called the Exodus, and that's when we'll have a resolution. Everyone will leave. So, bottom line, talking, singing, talking, singing, talking, singing. All the way through. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can follow that format. Oh, and one more thing. Uh, before we move on to the actual plays themselves, I did want to, I used the word scene, but I want to make sure that you understand there's probably never going to be a change of setting. Uh, the settings of these are really mostly in one spot. 
so there would be things that would happen, but lots of times they'll be off stage and then a messenger will come in and the messenger will tell what happened and we'll see the reaction from the people on stage to the action that has happened that we were not we weren't able to see because they don't have things like changing of sets. All right, that was probably a lot of detail. Uh, hopefully you found it interesting, but if you're reading this play, you need to kind of know uh, what you should be seeing in your mind's eye, or to me, it just gets really, really boring. All right, uh, I think that's it for a theater instruction for the moment. I don't want to wear you out too much. Um, I do want us to talk about eventually what is a tragedy, what is a tragic flaw, and all those things that are specific to Greek tragedy. But let's get into the story specifically. Uh, just because like Shakespeare, or maybe Shakespeare, just like Sophocles, neither one of them wrote their own stories. These were always going to be well-known narratives. Sophocles is retelling myths, and these myths were already known by every single person that would be attending the play. We're going to actually tackle the two most popular plays today by Oedipus, Oedipus King, or Oedipus Rex, as I like to say, and then Antigone. We're going to do Oedipus this week and the next week, and then we'll finish and well, we'll roll right into Antigone and then do that. That'll probably take us another uh, episode and a half or, or two. Uh, there is one more play that goes along with this trilogy called Oedipus at Colonus. It was actually performed only after Sophocles had died. Uh, and this third one, Oedipus is old and he's blindly been wandering for years in exile. And it's really beautiful and some consider it better than the other two but it's definitely not as famous so you'll have to catch that one on your own because we're just not going to have time to cover it here but hopefully we can uh get these two covered uh in these episodes they're short at least for a play all right uh the story of oedipus that's the one we're going to talk about today recognized as one of the greatest of all the surviving Greek tra- tragedies by those who get to decide those things. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, Not me. <laughs> no, we weren't, we weren't asked our opinion. No. It definitely has intrigued lots of thinkers for centuries, and perhaps no one more notably than the beloved Sigmund Freud, father of psychodynamic psychology, oh, yes. one of my faves. Everyone discusses what, in fact, does this story mean. Oedipus is so interesting. He's intelligent. He's confident. He's rash, but he doesn't seem to deserve all that he gets in the end. It somehow reminds us that greatness may or may not be what it appears to be, and that power and limitations will complicate relationships. Of course, the plot itself is so extreme, we can't identify with the situation, and in some sense, that makes it safe for us to even talk about it. Well, I agree. And one difference between then and now, that since the story was familiar back then, all the actor had to do was say Oedipus, and everyone already knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew the myth. They knew what had happened before the events on stage. They knew what was going to happen on stage, which, by the way, does make Oedipus a really unusual play, even, I think, for Greek plays, really. All the important things that are going to happen in the story of Oedipus actually happen before the play starts. So think of it like this. If we were going to plot this plot or chart this plot on Freight Tag's plot triangle, the climax of the story happened before the story begins or before the uh, the play begins. The 
protagonist has already done that from which he can no longer return. What this play is about is just the consequences, the fallout. But even this, the Greeks already knew. They just wanted to sit back and see how Sophocles was going to present it. So, since most of our listeners are not Greek, (laughs) although we do have a few, thank you, dear Greek friends, Gary, read to us this most famous Greek myth uh, as as just just tell the myth. Okay. Um, Sounds good, and I'm going to do exactly that. I'm going to read it. Uh, There are obviously many versions, but I'm going to read a version written by the now-deceased, revered, and actually beloved classical scholar, Bernard Knox. All right. His words. The story is old, strange, and terrible. Laius and Jocasta, the childish king and queen of Thebes, were told by the god Apollo that their son would kill his father and marry his mother. A son was born to them, and they tried to make sure that the prophecy would not come true. Laius drove a metal pin through the infant's ankles and gave it to a shepherd with instructions to leave it to die of exposure on a nearby mountain, Scytheron. The shepherd took the child up to the mountain, but pitied it and gave it to a fellow shepherd he met there, who came from Corinth on the other side of the mountain range. This shepherd took the child with him and gave it to the childless king and queen of Corinth, Polybus and Merope. They brought the child up as their own son and named him Oedipus, which in its Greek form Oedipus means swollen foot. His feet had been injured by the metal pin. So Oedipus grew up in Corinth as the king's son with no idea of his real parentage, and Laius and Jocasta believed that their child was dead and the prophecy of Apollo was false. After Oedipus became a young man, he was told by a man who had drunk too much at a banquet that he was not the real son of Polybus. He was reassured by Polybus and Merope, but a lingering doubt remained and rumors were spreading abroad. He went on in his own initiative to Delphi in the north of Greece to the Oracle of Apollo to ask the god who his parents were. All he was told was that he would kill his father and marry his mother. He resolved never to return to Corinth to Polybus and Merope and started out to make a new life for himself elsewhere. He came to a place where three main roads met and in the narrow place was ordered off the road and then attacked by the driver of a chariot in which an old man was riding. A fight started, and Oedipus, in self-defense, killed the old man and his attendants, all except one who escaped and took the news to Thebes. The old man in the chariot was Laius, king of Thebes. And so the first half of the prophecy of Apollo was fulfilled. Oedipus, though he did not know it, had killed his father. Oedipus continued on his way and came to Thebes. He found the city in distress, A monster, the Sphinx, part bird, part lion, part woman, was killing the young men of Thebes and refused to go away until someone answered her riddle. Many had tried, but all failed and met their death. The Thebans offered a great reward to anyone who could answer the riddle of the Sphinx, the throne of Thebes, and the hand of Jocasta, the widowed queen in marriage. Oedipus volunteered to answer the riddle. There is a creature, two-footed, and also four-footed and three-footed. It has one voice. When it goes out on most feet, then it goes most slowly. Oedipus answered the riddle correctly. The answer is man, 
who goes on all fours as a child and on two feet as an adult and on three as an old man since he has a stick to help him along. Oedipus married Jocasta, his mother, and became king of Thebes. The prophecy was fulfilled, but he did not realize it. For many years he ruled Thebes well and admired and just king. He had two daughters and two sons, and then a plague broke out in Thebes. The people of the city died, the cattle died, the crops rotted, the Thebans thronged the temples, and a delegation of priests went to the palace to beg Oedipus to save them. These are the priests who came on stage at the beginning of the play. And as they enter, the stage door opens, and a masked actor comes out and addresses them. The play has begun. Well, there's a lot in that story. I mean, there's a lot in that story uh, before you even get to the play. But you may can see from the Greek point of view that since you know what's happening, what has happened, that this play is going to be a lot about irony. Now, remember, irony means it's the opposite. Dramatic irony means that we know what's going on and the characters in the play don't. So we know before the play starts that Oedipus is Jocasta's son, but Jocasta doesn't know that and Oedipus doesn't know that. And so we know all this is in the background and these guys, you know, have no understanding of that. So that creates a lot of verbal irony. And in some sense, this is going to put us in the position of a God throughout the entire play. We can see their lives. We can see their struggles. We can see their decisions from an omniscient perspective. And it's in a strange sense that we can identify and kind of respect how the characters are just blindly screwing up their lives. And that's exactly how we are supposed to be thinking about it. Sophocles is going to go to quite an effort to listen. Well, let me say it this way. He's going to deliberately refrain from suggesting that Oedipus is just this poor sap who's been cursed by Apollo for no reason. He's not a bad guy, but he's also not perfect. He's courageous. He's strong. He's a leader. These are all things that we want to be to some degree. Uh, but for this reason, perhaps we can identify him, even though we're not definitely not going to identify with these events. These events are super extreme. At the same time, because what he does is so out of bounds, we're detached. None of us, well, I'm not asking Freud this question, but none of us <laughs> How about most would of us? consider I mean, killing our fathers and marrying our mothers. So uh, we can feel better than Oedipus in some sense because we would never do that. But uh, like the Greek gods, like maybe even the god Apollo, we already know everything that's going to happen to Oedipus, everything that he's going to do, the consequences for these actions. And so everything that comes out of his mouth is going to appear somewhat ironic. This is what I mean by this. Oedipus is going to say this, I will fight on behalf of Laius as if he were my own father. And we, of course, when this comes out of his mouth, we're going to think, he is your father. <laughs> yeah, He just doesn't know it. And there's other places in the play that he's, I'm cursing the murderer of Laius. 
and you're going to say, don't do that. You're cursing yourself. So this is the kind of stuff that drips from basically every single line of both Oedipus and Antigone, but I think Oedipus a little bit more. What it comes down to in a metaphorical or a thematic sense, which we will talk about much more next week, is this idea that in some sense Oedipus really is a victim. He didn't deserve this, but yet in some sense Jocasta is a victim, and in some sense they're not. They're really not innocent. They're not entirely 100% blameless. There are things that they could have done. And as the play unfolds, we'll see that in some sense, uh, and in some sense, it embodies all of life. There are things that are out of control, that are out of our control. There's some things that we could have done, should have done. Uh, life really is this strange combination of fate and fortune. <laughs> as the Greeks like to think of it. Um, before we get into the play, and I really, we, we, we don't have time to start it today, and we're not planning on starting it today, but a couple things I do want to point out, one, before we go one step further, because it's just fun to know, um, the Sphinx. Everyone's seen the Sphinx, um, part bird, part lion, and part woman, uh, but the Sphinx is most famous for the famous riddle, and I wanted to, I didn't want to go any farther without um, letting, you know, reminding you of this is probably the most famous riddle uh, anybody uh, has ever heard. And so the here's the famous riddle. There is a creature, two-footed, also four-footed, and also three-footed. And the idea is if you could figure that out, you could be king, and only one person could. And, of course, uh, it's man. So just a little fun fact that's kind of a... a a big thing to point out. But beyond that, I really think we don't have time to get uh, into the philosophical framework, which is what we are going to do next week. Next week, I want us to talk about uh, what are the big questions? What are the big life questions that we need to have in our mind that he's introducing right here in the myth, right here in scene one, before we go any farther. But we also want to talk about what is tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. Well, next week we will jump into the deep, deep waters of the philosophical words of Sophocles. Thanks for being with us today. Um, Check us out on our uh, Facebook page, our Instagram page, our howtolovelitpodcast.com page. Most importantly, share our podcast with your friends. We are currently being followed in over 60 countries around the world, and we would like more people to come on board. Send the picture, and peace out. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com